All right, what's up? Good morning. How are we doing out there? Yes, we got some energy up in here. So glad to have you guys. My name is Stan Hyatt. I'm going to be lead pastor here at Anthem Church. And so welcome. Glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, my wife, you're not going to meet her this service. She was at the first service, Sarah. Um, love my wife. We've been married now almost 11 years. We spent a lot of our time um, dedicated to feeding, caring, training local children in need. They go by names Danica, Hannah, Tally, and Janessa. There are children, okay? There are children. Um, so we're, uh, yeah, it's fun. They're nine, eight, six, and four, and they are terrors, and we love them. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we came here to Missouri four years ago to see this church get started. Had a great group of people that were committed uh, to, to seeing this place uh, reached. And so, and we've got great people, part of Anthem Church members. In fact, y'all are sitting in the air condition on this side. We've got some people. I'm going to address them. They're actually like in our uh, storage room over there, like through those doors. And so this camera over here is set up for them. And so for those watching in the storage spot, uh, thank you for giving up your seats uh, so the, these guys can have seats. And so just incredible. It's, it's fun. And so as we kind of get started, we just acknowledge there's a number of new people here. As Chris had freshmen, raise your hand. And so with that, we want to take a break from our normal cadence, which is teaching whole books of the Bible. Um, and we just want to take a few weeks to do the mission and vision of Anthem Church. Because we're saying, if you're going to jump on with us, we want you to know where we're heading, right? And so we just want to be clear. We just want to be fair. And so, so this week, we're going to start with the vision of Anthem Church. And if you're taking notes, it's going to be pretty simple. There's, there's three things that we're going to walk away with today. There's good news, there's bad news, and then there's some marching orders. And so with that being said, would you rather have the good news or the bad news first? Bad. Bad. Good. That goes with my outline. We're going to do bad news first, okay? If you would have said good news, that would have messed me up, okay? Um, but bad news. Here's the bad news. You are worse than you think you are. You're worse than you think you are. And, and I'm not hearing my voice like on that video. You're like, oh, I sound like that. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you've heard yourself, you're like, I sound. Okay, not just those things, but I'm saying as a person, most people would deem themselves to be a good person. And what I'm telling you, Scripture is going to say, no, you're actually worse than you would dare dream. While you might consider yourself good, Scripture would say this in Romans 3, and guys, we're going to be blitzing through the entirety of the Bible today. And so we're going to put it up on the screen today. Normally, again, we'll be in books of the Bible. We'll be back in the book of Acts. Uh, Salt Company, y'all are doing Daniel uh, this, this fall, which, yeah, buckle up. You get past chapter 6, and we're getting into it, okay? So, uh, but for today, we're just going to put it up on the screen, primarily reading out of the ESV. But, but in terms of being worse than what you think you are, Scripture would say this. If you think you're to be a good person... As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This reality from Scripture that we were made in the image of God and we're purposed to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, but we have all turned aside. All have turned aside. There's no one who does good. And we turn aside by breaking his commands. God says, hey, you shouldn't lie, but we lie. Honor your parents, but yet there's dishonor. 
taking his name in vain. There's an angry selfishness, sexual immorality. God puts out the list, and over and over it's just like, hmm, falling short. Ephesians would say in chapter 2, verse 3, that by nature we are children of wrath. It's in our nature. And if y'all don't believe me, we do nursery, the first service. Volunteer for kids' nursery. If you don't believe that we're born sinful, watch these little kids steal each other's toys and hit them upside the head, right? Like we, parents don't teach kids to, to sin like that. It comes built in. And we spend all of our time trying to parent that out of them. Okay, so by nature, we are sinful. And so here's the thing is, is, is we are not good. Now, sometimes we can judge ourselves based on other people. where it's like, well, I'm better than this person at that. So maybe, but Scripture would say this. We're not going to be judged in comparison to other people. We're going to be judged in comparison to Christ. He gets to define good. And so here's Acts 17, again on the screen. Uh, I memorized it in the NIV, so I'll just quote that. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God is going to judge the world, and it's going to be in comparison to Jesus Christ. So not how do you stack up against your, your, your roommate? How do you stack up against, you know, that sibling in your family that's always causing problems? No. How do you stack up in comparison to Christ? And some of you are like, I am that sibling always causing problems. Okay. But here's the, the deal is that we're going to be judged in comparison to Christ. And the, the standard which God would have for us is perfection. Matthew 5, verse 48, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount recently, that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, if God's standard is perfection, when you stand before him and have to give an account for every careless word that was spoken, every thought that went through your head, and the standard is perfection, would you be found innocent or guilty? Guilty. And to which you might say, well, hey, Stan, everybody has done that. It's like, right, now you're quoting Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're right. Yes, we would all stand guilty. But it, it gets worse because some of y'all, I know you've been around church enough, you're like, oh, but I think there's another part to this. I think there's some good news coming. But part of me wants to just simmer a little bit, Anthem Church, and can we just stay in this moment for just a brief moment and not rush past the reality of our sinful condition? Because here's a question. Have you stopped sinning? Perhaps you've been around church for a while. Have you stopped sinning? Have you stopped falling short? Now, careful, because 1 John 1.10 says, uh, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, maybe I'll just ask it like this. As you've matured, as you've matured, perhaps, as somebody who professes Jesus, do you view yourself as more sinful or less sinful? Does that make sense? Do you view yourself now as you were like, okay, like as you've matured, do you view yourself now today as more sinful or less sinful? The reason I ask this is i looking at the life of, of the Apostle Paul. In about 56 AD, one of his first letters, Paul would write this. He said, for I am the least of the apostles. 
unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so one of Paul's first letters, he's saying there's these apostles, these guys that walk with Jesus. He's like, I don't even know if I'm worthy to be counted among them because I used to you know, kill people <laughs> that were Christians. And so he's like, I'm, I'm probably the worst apostle. A few years later, he would tell the Ephesians, again, as he is maturing, what does he say? He says, the grace was given to me the least of all, the saints, that is, it's another way to say the least of all Christians, I'm not actually the least of the apostles, I'm probably the least of all the saints. And that was about in 60, 61 AD, and just a couple years later, he would tell this to Timothy, a fellow leader and pastor. He says, this saint is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. It makes my hair just stand out. When you see the progression of Paul, he's like, I'm not the worst apostle. <laughs> and, I, I, and he goes to a spot where it's like, maybe I'm the worst Christian. Now he's like, of all the sinners in all the world, I'm the worst of them. Now, Paul, as Paul matured in his faith, he saw himself as, as more in light of who God is in his righteousness. Paul was not actually more sinful he just more clearly saw himself in light of God's holiness. As we mature, it's not a matter that we, we sin more. We just become more apparent of how sin just permeates so much of what we think, we say, and we do. One of the godliest men that I've had mentor me in my life, to see him just cry tears over the brokenness of his sin. And I remember one time as he's like, just so broken by the, the sin he's confessing. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm not even convicted by that. I didn't even know that was sin. Man, I am so callous to what's going on. But to see that maturity in Christ actually is to more clearly see our sin for what it is in light of God's holiness. I'd say it like this. If we haven't stopped sinning, why is it that many have stopped asking forgiveness? Does that make sense? If, if, we, if I ask you, hey, has there been any sin in your life? No. Have you asked for forgiveness? And, and as I'm studying this out this week and just praying the Psalm 139, again, it'll be on the screen. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in ways of everlasting. God, would you just reveal to me? If I've wronged anybody, if I've sinned, if, if I need to reconcile, he's like, well, glad you asked. <laughs> so this week I had to go to Matt, and I'm like, Matt, can we reconcile? I think I might have wronged you. Christy, Erica, I'm just having conversations. My wife, all four of my daughters. The reality it is just being aware of the sin, and I hate it, and excusing it or pretending that it doesn't exist doesn't actually make it go away. Mature. Christians, those growing in maturity, becoming aware, go and reconcile. And so I ask you, man, have you stopped sinning? So the question is, when's the last time, though, that you've gone to God and gone to others and said, I was wrong? Would you please forgive me? That was not loving. That was not kind. And sought reconciliation because growth as a Christian comes from clearly seeing yourself in light of God's holiness. That's the bad news. And as we Stand in light of God's holiness, and we let him define what we're to be about. 
All of a sudden we see, man, we are worse than we ever dared imagine. But the good news is, is that we are more loved than we ever dared hope. Romans 6.23 captures this in a single verse that what we deserve for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The good news is that there was one who stood in the gap who was willing to pay the punishment that you and I deserve, and that, that is Jesus Christ. That he took the judgment we deserve in Romans verse 8 says this, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't matter about what we do. It is first by grace that we've been saved through faith, not by works so that anyone could boast, Ephesians said. But it's because of what Jesus Christ has done through grace. And not only did God in his mercy, the good news, to save us that we could spend eternity with God in heaven. But heaven's come down and Jesus said, I have come, John 10, 10, that you would have life in life to the fullest. Ephesians 2, 10, as it continues to say, we are God's workmanship. Not only did he save us for eternity with him, but we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You understand what he's saying? He did not just save us. It's like, okay, here you wretched sinner. Just don't screw up anymore. He's saying, no, I, I've got you, and I want you to be a part of my plan. You get to join in. You get to participate in God's graciousness to us that, that he's even given us gifts that we get to use those, which is really to our joy. And I want to be able to better comprehend this good news. Now, some of you, you've heard that, but I want to be able to better comprehend. And so, got married, like I said, about 11 years ago, uh, and we took a little honeymoon, and we went to uh, Mexico. I don't know where. Don't ask me. It was just this all-inclusive uh, resort, which, by the way, those are super cheap right now if you want to take off, all right? Uh, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but, but we went to this all-inclusive resort, and I remember being there and swimming in the ocean. How many, have anybody ever, like, done some snorkeling in the ocean? Yeah, a few of you made it out of Missouri. Yeah, congrats, okay? The rest of you just look with jealousy. You're like, oh, repent. Okay, no. Uh, but I remember being there. We're swimming around in this, like, bay for, for, for a couple days, and then we learned, like, oh, they have snorkeling equipment. And I'm like, let's do that. And my wife, she's traveled. She's done it all. But for me, this is kind of a big deal. So, and I didn't know how big a deal. I put the little snorkel gear on and I like wade out into the water. And again, have been swimming in this water for days. And then the moment where I just take my head and like plunge it under the water, my first reaction when I saw what was below the surface you didn't know it was possible, but you can scream into a snorkel, <laughs> which I did. I was like, no way. You've got to be kidding me. And I'm just looking because there's a whole world that exists below the surface that I've just been swimming in. There are fish of all different colors and kinds, and it's just below the surface. And I'm just looking at this underwater, like, majesty. I don't know what. It was just so, like, awe-inspiring. And so I'm just looking. My wife, I don't know, she had to be concerned with who she married because I'm just face under just screaming through the snorkel. Uh, but I just remember, and now 
The question is, is did, am, am I an ocean explorer? Yes. Did I get to explore the ocean? Well, yeah, simply put. But the reality is, is, is when it comes to the ocean, guys, we sent people to the moon. But when it comes to our own ocean, over 80% is undiscovered, unmapped, and unobserved. We don't know what exists out there, which is why I ain't swimming any further than about, you know, chest deep, right? Because it is unexplored. And so why do I share all that? Because what I'm saying is I'm not doubting that you know God in the same way that I feel like I know what's happening out there in the ocean. It's true in part, but not in full because I am equally as convinced that, that when it comes to knowing God in his vastness, we just have such a small fraction, which is why, why uh, Paul's going to pray for the Ephesians. This will be on the screen. His prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3 is that, that you may know, the, that you may have the power to understand that you would just have the power to, to understand all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Again, his prayer for them is that they would be made complete with all fullness of life and the power that comes from God. His prayer is that you would begin to better understand the vastness of God. And his love for us. And so, yeah, while we covered, there's, there's bad news. We don't deserve the grace of God because we've sinned and fallen short. But the good news is that God in his mercy sent Jesus for us. And so why our, our vision that we have at Anthem Church is we want to help people know, love, and obey. Because we really believe as we're talking that if you know God, the more we begin to understand God. This isn't a one-time deal like knowing the ocean. This is going to be life and all of eternity better trying to wrap our minds around the vastness of who God is. And so we say, man, if you know God, then that ought to overflow in a love for God. And from that love for God comes obedience. And the progression is really important because a lot of times people are like, oh, we're in church. Let's talk about obedience. Is it all right if I live with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Is homosexuality okay? Can it? And everybody wants to talk about matters of obedience. And I'm saying, we'll talk about that, but when you get the order wrong, all of a sudden, whether or not you're, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're going to have bigger problems on Judgment Day if you don't know Jesus Christ. And so we got to be careful to get the order right is, is, do you know God? That's the first importance because, again, all these things working together. If we just focus on obedience, that's more concerned with behavior modification than it is the heart, than it is with relationship with the Lord. Now, some would say, well, let's just focus on, on knowing God. Well, that's good, but if that knowledge of who God is and what he's done never leads to action, Scripture would argue perhaps you don't even know God because it ought to produce something to which somebody's like, wow, Knowledge, obedience, knowledge, let's just love, man. Let's just, let's just love. Yeah, the 60s did that. 
but arguably they didn't do it with God, right? This is this, this love that's apart from knowledge of who God is that doesn't manifest itself in obedience how God would have, arguably is not real love. And so all these things working together, know, love, and obey. And first things first is we want people to know God. And I just want to get out ahead because if you're coming around here, hopefully in light of our vision, you're going to get asked often, hey, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Tell me about your God story. And we're not doing that to create awkward moments, but that's a better starting point than saying, tell me about your Bible reading plan. Tell me about your, your, your church attendance. How much are you giving? Again, are all those things worth discussing? Yeah, but in light of the relationship, and if, if you know God and you have a genuine relationship with him, a lot of those things actually take care of themselves. And so what we don't want to do, and I believe in, 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 there's been a lot of, of well-meaning people that have mistaken church participation for actual relationship with Jesus. And I just want to create like a, a, a fair warning to everybody that's participating in, in maybe a connection group. Man, people talking about their problems, we need to talk about those things. But don't get duped into modifying behavior when people don't perhaps have a relationship with Jesus. That's first, that's foremost, is knowing God. Does that make sense? And so we don't want to just modify behavior and say, oh, what's the outside look like, but never actually address the heart. The Pharisees were great at that and were damned because of it. And so we want to know God first and foremost. And I want to just camp on that a little bit because our cultural moment, I think, would call for that. As a culture, we're getting woke to a lot of things, but we're very woke to the gospel. Does that make sense? Everybody wants to talk about culture and, and let's become enlightened and all these things, but when it comes to the gospel, we were getting pretty dumb about that. And I just want to camp on that because I think that, that it's easy to get derailed in our cultural moment. And 2 Timothy talks, it's not a new thing to derail people, but 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4 talks about this. It says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No, no soldier gets entangled in a civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What he's saying is we are trying to see God's kingdom come. We're trying to advance his cause, his kingdom. First and foremost, we're soldiers in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. You know the song, right? And so, and again, I don't have time to unpack what are the civilian pursuits that are entangling them? I would just say simply put, if our passion about face mask ordinances, politics and policies, when our passion about network marketing and network news, when our passion for those things permeate our, our, our social media posts and our language, when, when our passion and fervency for those surpass our love and fervency for the Lord, Rest assured, you're getting caught up in civilian pursuits. If our time is truly limited, our breath, if we've got that breath, what I want to be using it to advance is God's kingdom, not my individual cause. Practically speaking this week, what that looked like is the university, 
they came out with some policies. They were pretty unclear Monday. And, but it seemed like it was directly aimed at you guys to not be able to participate church, in church. So you can go to class, you can go to a football game, but you can't be in a group of 20 or more, which would certainly involve church. And so we had to seek some clarity as staffers. We're like, uh, university, can you explain? Sought the Lord in prayer, like, Lord, please don't let us have to fight this right now. Sought a little bit of legal counsel. But here's our student leaders. What I'm saying is, being a soldier in the Lord's army, what's that look like? Our, our student leaders didn't spend their energy taking up an offense. What they spent their energy was taking to campus. In fact, students going to campus, in fact, if you're here, perhaps it's because you met one of our student leaders on campus. And it was encouraging to, to hear them out on campus, meeting students right where they're at, letting the joy that God has in the heart be evident to all. And honestly, I would say that the restrictions, which personally I don't love, but the outcome of that is we by far and away made more contacts this year than we ever have because of the restrictions. In fact, within the first three days, we had met close to a couple hundred students on campus through our student leaders. And God, his plan is better. In fact, tonight, we're supposed to be, all you freshmen that raise your hand, we're supposed to be doing this big kickoff with the, the sound system out in this open field. I mean, just epic kickoff, throwdown. Chris, he's working on seminary stuff. He's just going to preach fire. But now, new plan, unprecedented. Anything that I've seen in, in years of working with college students, we actually are going to do co-ed, smaller groups, meeting probably around a fire pit in somebody's backyard around town. And I'm actually starting to get pretty convinced that the gospel is going to move forward faster and further in that model than what we would have had planned as our student leaders are now the ones that are actually going to be leading those things, sharing what God has done in their lives and inviting others to be on mission with them together. Got to trust God in these things and what we are going to be about as a church, what we are committing to as a church, just to be clear, is we're going to seek to advance God's kingdom, not our political ideologies and these things. And, and here's the reality, why we believe advancing the kingdom is first and foremost. Because if the brokenness, and I will grant you, there is brokenness in politics. There is brokenness in our world, the, 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 the abortion rate. Certainly racism exists. Man, you name it, there is brokenness that we see in corruption everywhere. But to, to think that that brokenness can ultimately be solved apart from Jesus, you're mistaken. Because, yeah, you take one broken leader and you substitute them with another, you're still going to have sin. The problem is sin. And until we address sin and reconcile people to Jesus, we have no hope in human systems led by other fallen people. Again, go back to point one. The bad news is we're broken. And it's only when we're reconciled to Jesus and we come to know him and we allow him to lead and lead our church that we can have any hope. And so when we keep the main thing the main thing, it's going to help us as a church be unified. Matt said it like this last week. He said, if one day the lion and the lamb are going to lie down together, 
Surely the right and left ought to be able to find unity. And we find unity, not conformity, because we just all believe and think the same things about everything. That's conformity. Unity can happen because we keep the main thing the main thing. And secondary issues can be just that, secondary. And so when we keep the main thing the main thing, and here's the reality is, is that we are, the main thing is God has forgiven us. He has shown us grace. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are poised to spend all eternity worshiping God together. And if that's the case, we probably ought to be able to figure out how to get along right now. And we do that by keeping the main thing the main thing and letting secondary issues be just that, secondary. And it's our knowledge of God and what he's done that enables us to do that. And from that, it flows into love, unity. We say this in 1 John uh, 4, 10, 11, says this, in this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we can love because he first loved us. As we know God and what he's done, it ought to overflow into this love for God. And this love that God has shown us can grow and we can love others because of God's love for us. Now, how do you comprehend the love of God? Well, here's one way that, that again, we're going to do is, is God's word to us. Man, somebody once said, you want to hear God speak? Just read your Bible out loud. I mean, this is God's love letter to us. He's written it down. And if we can just pour ourselves into Scripture, studying it together as a church on our own, memorizing Scripture, fasting, praying, you think of the spiritual disciplines, being in community. I mean, one way to feel love is to get around God's people. All these things point us to better understanding God's love for us. And when we understand God's love for us, it ought to overflow, as First John said, that we can love others. And that love is going to manifest itself in these ways of obedience. So know, love, and obey. Because here's the thing, is, is, is faith in God ought to manifest this love, and that ought to look like something. If somebody's like, I love, first John would say this, like, it's like, I love God, I just don't do anything for him. Hey, I love God, I just, I just hate people, his people. It's like, uh, I don't think you actually know God. James would say it like this, James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. Later on, the next chapter, James would say this, oh, you believe in one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And get this, and they shudder. Demons, I remember reading that verse when I was in college, and that was one of the first ones I committed to memory because it shook me to realize it's like, oh, you, you believe in God. You know, you got the, that's on your uh, Facebook profile, and you got the little fish sticker, you believe in God, good. Satan believes in God and is terrified. That's what the verse is saying. That kind of belief Satan believes, Satan was with Jesus in the desert tempting him. He certainly believes in him. But that's not kind of belief that scripture would call us to. We ought to, our belief ought to manifest itself in these acts 
of obedience. And so I understand that this can be confusing, so let me clarify. In the Ephesians verse is really helpful in doing this. Say it like this. Works, these acts of obedience, works are not necessary for salvation. In other words, works will not earn you a spot in heaven. So if you say, hey, why should God let me into heaven? And your response is, good person? Well, one, go back and see point one. No one's good, not even one. If your response is, why should God let you into heaven? Well, because I've done good things. No. Ephesians 2, if you put that back up on the screen, Grant, no, it's by grace that we are saved. Through faith. It's not of your own doing. You don't earn favor with God. It is a gift. It is a gift, a free gift of God, not a result of works. If there's any uncertainty that we don't earn favor with God by what we do, let it be seen right there. It's not a result of works so that anyone can boast. So works are not necessary for salvation. Next verse. But works are absolutely necessary because of salvation, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we should walk in them. Our works don't save us, but because we are saved, we have good works lined up by God himself that we would walk in them. And so they don't earn us favor, but because of what God has done. We can't help but manifest an overflow in these acts of obedience. First John would say it like this. If you, you say, I know him, but do not keep his commandments, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, your works do not change your standing with God, but because we've been made right with God through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, now we can get to work. And so what we're going to do, kind of in culmination, is, is often we celebrate communion here. Because it's a chance to remember what God has done. And so you have communion cups that are under your chair. Uh, and if you don't, we can get you one. But, but on top is, is the bread and certainly the cup. And that's representing the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to invite the band up. But, but here's, the, here's the reality as we take this. We've got to remember that we're worse than what we think we are, but Jesus Christ died for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's, it's because his body was broken, his blood was shed, that we can be forgiven. And so when we take communion, we're remembering that. And what I would want you to do this morning, one, as we get ready to take communion, as you do that, just where you're at, would you acknowledge your brokenness before God? And some of you are like, well, I did that at church camp that one time. I'm telling you, you're still broken. Would you acknowledge that before God? Acknowledge that we deserve hell. That's step one. Acknowledge that brokenness. Call it what it is. And then two, in response, thank God that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but that he sent Jesus while we were still an enemy. He sent his son to die for us. Even though we don't seek after God, God seeks after us and he provided a way through Jesus Christ. And so acknowledge your brokenness, but thank God for the gift we have in Jesus Christ. That because his body was broken, 
Because his blood was shed, we can be forgiven. And not only that, that God raised him from the dead, proving that there is life after life. And so as you do that, I would just invite you to, to, in your own time, take communion and reflect. And then in light of that, the forgiveness, ask God, what might you have for me in light of this good news? What are the marching orders that you would have for me? Would you just invite God as someone who's in the Lord's army? Yes, sir. That you would say, God, what marching orders do you have for me? I just want to be clear. As a church, we are committed to helping people know, love, and obey because we truly believe the only hope in this fallen world is Jesus Christ. He is the answer for this life and the life to come. And so do this in remembrance. And so the band's going to play. I'm going to pray. When you're ready, take communion. Ask God what he would have for you. Then you can stand and worship with us. And so, Lord, we do. We just come before you in this moment now and ask, God, that you would search our hearts, that you would help us confess those sins. And so, God, would you just reveal those things to us now? And, Lord, with the joy that we have from knowing you, would you just help us feel the full weight of your love this morning? Perhaps not the full weight as we probably implode, but, God, would you just help us better comprehend the love that you have for us, the vastness, that that ocean, would you help us put our head down and be able to begin to see how much you do love us. Lord, would you just clearly call people to what you would want them to do in response. And so we, we take communion this morning in remembrance of what you've done.